it's a fascinating field and that's kind of why I've been in it for so long to see the technology develop to see you know the way the sophistication of the images develop and to see the impact it has on patient care Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Brian Casey. Brian is the editorial director of Casey Insights, a consulting firm offering content development and consulting services to the medical imaging industry. He has 30 years of experience as a journalist covering the industry, starting in 1992 with Diagnostic Imaging Magazine. He was the founding editor-in-chief of Antmini.com in 1999, one of the most important trade publications, and led that website's content operations up until recently when Brian launched his new venture. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. So my guess is that for our audience, Brian, you didn't need an introduction because our audience <laughs> is predominantly people that are super plugged in to the radiology industry. They're leaders, innovators, academicians, entrepreneurs, the like. You know, so we're we're so excited to have you on the show and that's and great talk to be here about the long arc of your career in the industry and also what's ahead. Awesome. Well, it's been it has been a long arc. Um, as you mentioned, um, my career in radiology dates back to 1992. Uh, I started with uh, Diagnostic Imaging Magazine, and if if you've got any old timers listening to this podcast, they'll remember Diagnostic Imaging Magazine. Uh, Peter Ogle and 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 some of the other folks that that worked there back then, I literally answered an ad in the newspaper. If you remember those, <laughs> um, for the classified ad in the newspaper, and they wanted a junior editor to work on an industry newsletter called uh, Diagnostic Imaging Scan that went out to vendors, and so it was about this industry called radiology, and I was kind of like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. I didn't really know anything about it, and. I was actually working at a food and beverage newspaper in San Francisco, covering like the, the San Francisco restaurant and wine scene. And so this was just like a brand new thing for me. I went in and, and I met Peter Ogle and somehow they offered me the job. And so I started working on Scan. It was a twice a week newsletter that went out, no images in it, which was kind of odd considering that radiology is such a imaging heavy field. Uh, my first RSNA was 1992. And I uh, have gone to RSNA every year except for 2020, which was the pandemic year, of course, where, where nobody went. They didn't have RSNA that year. In uh, 1999, I left Diagnostic Imaging uh, to start AntMini.com. This was um, during kind of the, the web you know, 1.0 hype, and, and a lot of publications were, were moving online. And um, it, you know, it still wasn't really – no, I think – I don't think anybody foresaw that the print industry would go the way that it would, but you know, it kind of seemed like it might with the internet coming on and stuff like that. And so, we can you know talk a little bit more about Antmini if you want, but um, you know, it turned out to be a good move. I have so many questions, and I don't know where to start because I'm just so excited to talk about everything. This is the intersection of all of my favorite things: radiology, oh. media, tech, uh, all converging in, into one. Maybe I'll start with this: What were you writing about in 1992? Oh gosh. Um, well, MRI had had just come along, 
And so MRI had come along in the late 80s. And so, you know, by 1992, it was MRI was pretty well established. Um, but it was kind of, you know, definitely the new kid on the block. People were still complaining about PET, you know, is PET ever going to become a real modality? So it just wasn't, PET wasn't a thing yet. And the, the, the biggest thing in 1992 was it was before PACS. And before PACS, uh, picture archiving, communication systems, digital image management, you know, all these things that we take for granted today. And so medical images were still being printed out on film and being put up on a light box and radiologists were reading off a light box. And in about 1993, radiology came out with the DICOM 3.0 standard, and that's what really changed everything. Before DICOM 3.0, you had PACS, you had digital image management, but it tended to be like one vendor would go into a hospital or a health system, and they would put in their image management software, and it wouldn't communicate with anything else. So you kind of had to have all your equipment made by the same manufacturer and all of your software made by the same manufacturer. So you just, you had to be a single vendor shop. And, you know, that's not really practical for most hospitals. You know, you might have an ultrasound scanner from one company that you like and an MR scanner from another and a CT from another. And when DICOM 3.0 came out, it created the standard that where they just said, it was kind of like the JPEG for radiology. They said, okay, all images are going to be in this one standard format and you need to be able to communicate with each other. So if you've got a CT scanner from company A or an MR scanner from company B, you can send it to software from company C and radiologists will be able to read that from a display. And it today it sounds like a no-brainer, right? I mean, that's just the way everything works right now. But, you know, back in 1992, it, it, it didn't work that way. And so that was really, that, that's been the biggest change that I've seen in radiology in my 30 years is the creation of a standard for medical images that everybody understands, everybody uses. And, and that's laid the foundation for what I see the, the biggest trend over the last three decades, which is the, the digitization of radiology, which has enabled so many different things like artificial intelligence and teleradiology and people reading from home and, and you know, just things that, that we just take for granted now. Incredible. It's so funny because it doesn't sound obvious to me at all that that had to happen. You could imagine yeah. there are people saying, no, it's it's going to be like the iPhone. It's all going to be proprietary and you got to do, you got to buy the software and the technology all from one place. And it's, it's amazing that they were able to build on and cooperate upon an open standard that enabled so much flourishing and innovation. I'm curious. So you come from food and beverage to a very technical field. Um, it's both heavy in tech and heavy in medicine. How did you figure out what was going on? Um, what was your approach to covering the industry? How did you find your voice? How did you find out what to write about? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I just, I remember going to some of my first meetings and I, I think the first meeting I went to was the Society of Nuclear Medicine meeting in Los Angeles in 1992. And that was also kind of a crazy experience too, because it, the Rodney King riots had just happened in LA literally weeks before. And so you're driving from the airport, you're driving to the the conference center in downtown LA, and there's all these like burned out shells of buildings and stuff like that. So that was crazy. You know, aside from that, I, I remember going to that meeting and just being like overwhelmed by the technology of just 
you know, what is, what are these things, these gamma cameras and these heads that move around and some of them have got one and some got two and there's a couple that even got three heads and, you know, what is all this stuff? And I was kind of baffled by everything for the first year. And I, I basically approached every story I wrote on an individual basis as, as kind of a learning experience. Like, okay, you know, I went to S&M and I covered that. And now we're going to do something on MR. Let's learn about MR. Now we're going to do something on CT. Let's learn about CT. And I was kind of, you know, baffled for the first year. And then I, were, I went to the next S&M meeting a year later. And I remember walking around the floor of the meeting and going, oh, I know what this is. I know what that is. And really kind of a light went off where I realized like, wow, I actually understand, you know, this industry and kind of how it works. And that was kind of, you know, sort of an epiphany for me. And, and it kind of made me feel a lot better about my choice of, of career at that point. And so would you do lots of primary interviews and oh yeah, yeah. talking to doctors, talking to business people? Yep. So I was, I was working for Diagnostic Imaging Scan, which was an industry newsletter. And so most of what I was doing was talking to business leaders as opposed to radiologists. And so hmm. uh, if a company came out with a new CT scanner, I'd be calling them up and you know, asking about what some of the details of the scanner were. So there were some advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the, the, the advantage I had back then was that at Diagnostic Imaging, we just had great people. We really had great people working there and they were really experienced and they really were really talented and they knew what they were doing. And I was kind of able to sort of latch onto their coattails. Um, the disadvantage was, unlike today, you couldn't just type into a computer a question about something or look at something up on Wikipedia, you know, that didn't exist. This is pre-internet. I remember sometimes we used to have a, a room in the copy room. It was full of phone books. And, you know, you'd go in, if, if you ever had to figure out like where somebody was from or something like that, you'd go in, you'd go into this copy room and you'd literally have to look it up in these with these books, you know? And so that was kind of, that was kind of the situation back then. I think things are so much easier now because, you know, you, you've got basically almost all the world's knowledge at your fingertips, you know, in terms of the internet and you can kind of look at anything up. And, and I think that that helps a lot. So as you gain an understanding, gain a footing in the, in the industry, you're building up your audience, who is the audience that you speak to and how do you think about that? Because obviously there's the industry broadly, and I know, you reach a large audience of clinicians and administrators and vendors and people domestically and internationally, and they all have sort of different things that they're interested in. And so how did you find, you know, who was your primary audience? Who are you really writing for? You said, well, I the, did it right for them. That's fine. Yeah. So the first seven years of my career, when I was working at Diagnostic Imaging Scan, uh, it was vendors. So that was kind of nice because it was a much smaller audience. I think Scan, it literally had a circulation of like 700 or 800 subscribers and who paid for a bit of money for this newsletter. When I went to Amp Mini in 1999, that was kind of a challenge for me because now my audience was potentially a lot bigger and it was mostly radiologists. So I kind of had to learn a new language a little bit in terms of speaking to the clinicians as opposed to speaking to the vendors. Cause I knew and talking to the vendors, I knew the language of business, but I had to learn the language of the clinicians now, the radiologists. And I had to learn about P values and I had to learn about hazard ratios, you know, how to interpret a research study. And so that was kind of a challenge for me, 
but uh, you know again we had a lot of great people in, in those early days of ant mini that i was wor working with as well and you know we all kind of learned it together so how did ant mini get started was it like classic silicon valley for people in a garage did you guys get some funding um... yeah that's a great that's a great question so the idea behind ant mini was from a, a radiologist the late phil berman and he passed away in 2009 i kind of think of him as the steve jobs of radiology because he had just ideas that came out of him were incredible and you know some of the first teleradiology links you know he pioneered that and, and he was literally like you know i'm a radiologist and i'm sick of having to always go in the office when i'm on call and, and look at a case why can't i just do it from my house and so he literally got someone to write the software code to do home teleradiology. And then he built a company around it. Film digitizers. You know, he was one of the first people to really come up with an idea for a film digitizer that was small enough to put on a desktop, you know, because they previously they were these big, huge, you know, coffee machine type things. So Phil was really a visionary and he had this idea back in early 1999, maybe late 1998 to start what he called the the yahoo of radiology and i use the term yahoo because google at that time didn't exist or if it, <laughs> it wasn't popularized yet so he wanted he was like you know yahoo's become such a big force but there's nothing in radiology why don't we start a yahoo of radiology and he also came up with the term ant mini we still you know even right before i left ant mini i, we, I was still getting this question is where did the name ant mini come from and it's actually a radiology term that goes back quite a ways to the 50s to Dr. Ben Felsen. And I believe he was at the University of Cincinnati. He was. Um, the yeah. legendary Ben Felsen. That's where the name came from. So he had, when he was educating residents, he would throw a case up on a light box and he'd say, this is an ant mini of a torn ACL. And he said, it's an ant mini because you recognize the diagnosis like you would recognize the face of your Aunt Minnie. And <laughs> Phil had studied with Dr. Felson, and he just was like, yeah, Aunt Minnie's the name. It's friendly. It's kind of this internet, you know, kooky name. What does it mean? Well, but... and I imagine at the time there was Ask Jeeves. Yeah. Uh, might have yeah. been big, so it, it kind of felt like the right internet style yeah. of name. But it was funny at first because, you know, I would literally call when I was working on stories in those first, year or two and i'd call somebody up and i'd say this is brian casey from aunt minnie and they'd be like what where you know you're not with radiology you know radiology magazine or or medical imaging magazine or something like that no it's aunt minnie and i have to explain it and, <laughs> and, and and so we you know we had to go through that those first few years <laughs> but the thing was is once the site started getting momentum just everybody knew it and everybody knew the logo, everybody knew the name, and it really stood out head and shoulders above the, the diagnostic imagings and the medical imagings and the radiologies and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was this really friendly face that people really came to love. And the other thing with, with Aunt Minnie in those early days is, you know, and, and still do, is, is it has a, a case of the day, which was started by uh, Dr. Mark Frank. And, you know, these cases, uh, people just love doing these cases. And so it wasn't just the news that me and my team were writing. It was the cases that everybody loved. And while I was there, I, I would get emails from all over the world from people who said, somebody in Brazil who said, 
you know, thank you so much. Aunt Minnie helped me pass my board exam in Brazil. You know, countries right. like Iraq and Iran and Nepal. I mean, it was just it, the, the global reach was just incredible. So going back to when you started at this time, it wasn't as easy as it is today to build a website. You had to kind of do everything. There was no AWS. There was no WordPress, all the tools today. So did you build an engineering team to, yeah. to scale this yeah. thing up? So uh, Phil, Dr. Berman's business was based in Tucson. So he he actually had, he, he was not a practicing radiologist at the time that he started the company. He was running a company uh, called Lumisys. And Lumisys had, had offices in uh, Sunnyvale, California and Tucson, Arizona. And they were making these digitizers in Tucson. So he already had, there, were, there was already a, a staff in place. Mm. So in those first few years, we kind of, um, leveraged off of the a lot of the assets that Loomis has had. They already had an engineering structure, and so we just we set up our engineering team kind of parallel to the Loomis's team uh, there in Tucson. And so we literally had a server room in Tucson, and we had an engineering team in Tucson. We still got a couple, or they still have a couple people there uh, in Tucson. Uh, actually, a half dozen people in Tucson, and. Yeah, there were some huge challenges. I mean, in those early years, we we kind of see. I was hired in June, no, July of twenty or of, of nineteen ninety nine, and we launched maybe four or five months later at RSNA, and we literally went from scratch to a functioning website in four or five months. That's amazing. And yeah, they, we called it the Death March. But you know, we <laughs> actually because you know, you know, in radiology, you've got to if you're working on something, you ha it has to be ready by RSNA. Yeah. But we actually hit the deadline. We actually did have it functioning. And, you know, there were a lot of hiccups along the way, you know, a lot of things that it's just, it's not as easy as it is now to get a website up and running and to use all these social channels and stuff like that. And then there were things that, you know, we never could have anticipated. Tucson is known for the really big uh, monsoon rainstorms and lightning storms. And so we did have uh, the power cut off a few times. And I remember one incident years ago where, Fortunately, they had a Lowe's hardware store uh, across the parking lot and the power got shut off and they had to go out and buy like several hundred feet of electric cord to keep the servers <laughs> running. Um, so that was kind of amazing. But, you know, and they and they, they kept it running and, you know, the amount of downtime that those guys had on those servers was was minimal. So it was really it was really incredible what they did. In parallel to launching the site and building up the coverage, did the business take off right away? Was it like you launch this and you go, this is going to work? Or do you have any near-death experiences? Yeah, it kind of did. You know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy to say, but it, you know, Ant Mini was one of these ideas that just, like, it wasn't profitable in that first year, but the growth was phenomenal. It really seemed to meet a need. We were growing really quickly. Now, the one thing that did happen was in, in 2000, uh, there was the dot-com bust. We had literally launched a couple months before this dot-com bust. And so the dot-com bust happened. And we were fortunate in that uh, Lumasys, this the ma manufacturer of these X-ray digitizers, was then acquired by Eastman Kodak. So we became a property of Eastman, Eastman Kodak. So Ant Mini was owned by Eastman Kodak, the you know, the make maker of the film and, and all that kind of stuff. And we were uh, run as a unit of Kodak for, gosh, I, I, you know, I don't even remember. It was maybe at least five, six years. And 
that really gave us the stability to continue to grow and become profitable. And so I always kind of have a soft spot in my heart for Kodak because they kind of enabled Ant Mini to, to become, you know, what it is today. And then after some number of years, um, you know, we were profitable and, and Kodak had decided, you know, they didn't want to be in the, the business of running radiology websites. And so then we were sold to a market research firm. But um, yeah, to go, to go back to your original question, it really did seem to just kind of start growing really quickly, just right off the bat. It's, it, we, we all kind of knew, even though we weren't profitable for a couple of years, we all kind of knew that we were hitting a need. Speaking of growing really quickly, you're now on your own. You've launched Casey Insights. You've been at it a few weeks. You already have a massive following. Okay. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what is Casey Insights? What are you doing so far and, and where do you think it's going to go? Thanks. Um, yeah, it's been great. I um, decided I wanted to kind of go out and kind of try my hand on my own. And the the thing that's so great, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how there weren't any tools back then for starting things up. And, and now there are so many tools, you know, and you can register a domain and you can build a website in a day and you've got a YouTube channel where you can put your videos up and you can record videos with your phone and they look great. And so you've got so many tools now to be able to produce content. And so that's what I've always loved doing is I've always just loved, I've loved the technology. I love writing about the technology. I've grown to love doing video about the technology. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm doing and it's great. I love it. The ability to build things quickly on today's internet is just profound. Yeah, no servers in your apartment in San Francisco keeping the website afloat, right? Nope. And so then the question now becomes, how do you command attention? Uh, because it's easy for everyone to make content and, and how do yeah. you stand out and how do you build audience? And I think, you know, how, how are you thinking about that? Well, that's the challenge. I mean, the positive thing is that there are a lot of social channels for you to try to get out and get attention. But the problem is that there's, you know, thousands, if not millions of other people doing the same thing. So I think that the thing that's most important is to know your audience, know your audience, know what they're interested in, know what they like, and try to meet that need without pandering to them. I, I think that part of the problem today with a lot of the internet is so much of it is optimized for, you know, Google search and getting clicks. And it, it sometimes it just feels like it's just pandering. Yeah. And so I, I try not to do that. So you've got to, it's got kind of a balance, you know, you want to meet the audience's need and their information need without trying to take advantage of them. That's kind of what I try to do. And I, I think that, you know, my, my number one piece of advice to somebody is just, just know your audience, you know, talk to your audience and figure out what they need and what they're looking for. It's critically important and it can be tempting to try and compete in the TikTok economy. But what I've always loved about your work is it's very thoughtful, able to be read quickly and deliver a lot of value. And you don't really have to go anywhere. You just awesome. open open my phone, read the latest Brian Casey email, and I'm going to feel really up to date. This was true at Ant Mini, and it's been true with the first set of posts that you've launched on Casey Insights. And I think if you stay true to that, you'll have a lot of people who rely on you as a news source. You know, one of the things that you talked about, so you, you went to RSNA first in 1992, you were there again in 2022, so 30 years later, there was lots of themes, probably the biggest were AI and maybe just labor shortage, if I could sum up into two, maybe maybe you'd add a third in there, but I think those were the two big ones. 
are we looking at this moment and 30 years from now, Brian Casey of the new radiologist joining, or you, 30 years from now, do you, do you think AI is as big as PAX? Bigger, smaller? What does it look like? Well, I first I have to say, I, I hope 30 years from now, I hope to be on a beach. Um, <laughs> that's fine we'll be on the beach and drinking daiquiris and we'll be talking about talking about you know the last 60 years of radiology yeah but no uh to get back to your question i think yeah boy i i wrote about this in a in a blog post about you you mentioned i, I think that you mentioned two things as you mentioned the the labor shortage and kind of economic issues and then you mentioned ai and i think that they're actually connected or they potentially could be connected because the problem right now with radiology is, and healthcare in general, is they're just we're facing really, really severe economic pressure uh, across healthcare. In radiology, you're seeing uh, radiologists who are having to deal with rising procedure volumes as more people are getting scanned. A lot of people put off getting scans during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And those folks are coming in and you know, they're, they're want, trying to catch up on their mammograms. At the same time, you've got the population is aging. People are getting older and they're requiring more healthcare and they're requiring more imaging. And imaging is, is being increasingly turned to as a way to try to figure out what's wrong with patients quickly, um, which is great, but the number of radiologists is really limited. And then finally, at the same time, you've got the federal government that just continues to drive down reimbursement for for procedures and right now on the table, there's a 10% pay cut for medical imaging. Um, as we talk here at the end of 2022, there's a 10% pay cut on the table for Medicare reimbursement starting in January. And unless Congress acts, that's gonna be a big haircut. So there are huge economic pressures on radiology. Some of them are short-term, some of them are long-term. Now, at the same time, you've got this technology coming into the field artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, that could really make an impact on radiology that's every bit as profound as what the arrival of PACS did, you know, with DICOM back in 1992, 1993. And what I saw at RSNA was, I, I, I saw a subtle, but what I think is a really significant shift in the way that vendors are talking about AI and it seems to have been moving away from talking about AI as a tool to help radiologists interpret images. And that's still there, you know, they're still doing that. But it seems like there's been much more discussion about using AI to address workflow challenges. You've got one MR room that's doing 30 scans a day and you've got one that's doing 25. Why, why is there a difference between these two? Or, or like just to make aware that your MR rooms have different levels of, of, of productivity. So AI can help with that. One radiologist is maybe reading a lot more scans than another radiologist. Why, why is that? AI can help with that. So all of these economic challenges that are you know really significant could potentially be addressed by AI. And so I think that that's something that's really exciting and that we're gonna see a lot more of in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. To get to the point where 30 years from now, AI is going to be so baked into radiology that you're just, you're barely going to even know it's there. In, in a lot of the same way that PACS and digital image management is so baked into radiology now that you barely even know it's there. I mean, every, you're sure you see your, you see the image up on your monitor and, you know, it's obviously it's right in front of your face, but 
you don't think about PACs and enterprise image management in the same way that you did in those early years of it when it was this novel thing and like, oh, well, let's, we're not going to use the light box. Let's use the, the monitor. So I'm hoping that as AI gets more robust and gets more powerful and we figure out how to use it and we figure out how to integrate it into radiology workflow and the average day of a radiologist, that it's really going to help deal with a lot of these economic pressures that you know, frankly don't have any other solution. Well said. And I certainly hope you're right. I think it's really cool to see the field rebounding. My wife is, I mentioned it before we jumped on, my wife is a neuroradiologist completing fellowship at the University of Utah. When she matched back in 2016, I think it was, there were 100 open positions in radiology. Everyone was afraid of AI and no one wanted to go into the field. And it's looking like this year is going to be the most competitive match in history as radiology uh, becomes a field that everyone wants to be a part of. And so I, I'm optimistic for the future that you've laid out. And I hope, uh, I hope that that's true. It's fascinating. Um, it's, it's a fascinating field. And that's kind of why I've been in it for so long is just to see the technology develop, to see, you know, the way the images, the sophistication of the images develop and to see the impact it has on patient care. In the early years, I remember one of the things that we used to talk about a lot was, you know, well, you know, we don't do exploratory surgery anymore, right? You remember that? I, I, you, you may not even be old enough to remember that, but I remember when people used to have to go in and get exploratory surgery. Wow. And it's just, and it's just, it's baffling. It's baffling to, to, to think of that, that, that anybody would oh, have to do yeah. that. And by the same token, there are things happening today that we're going to look back on in 30 years and say, oh my God, I can't believe people did like, like this, this journalist who, passed away of an aneurysm at the World Cup just a few days ago. And he, and he had an aneurysm that probably would have been detected if he'd had some sort of routine scan. And right now, we don't, you know, we shouldn't be screening healthy men in their 40s for aneurysms because it's too expensive and you know, there's downstream testing and all that kind of stuff. But at some point in the future, we may have the technology where we can do that and we can manage the cost and we can manage the downstream testing where people won't just be dying of these preventable conditions, you know, without any sort of warning. And if you kind of take a really long-term look at radiology, that's where things get really interesting is how can we detect conditions, you know, in people who aren't obviously sick? Because right now that, you know, our healthcare system is based on treating people who are already sick when they come in. And, you know, what if we can identify illness in people before they show any symptoms? And, and that's the goal of screening. And, and we do screen for, for certain conditions. But what if, thanks to, as the technology gets better, what if we can do that earlier and with more people without costing more? And that's sort of a, the, the holy grail, I guess. Well, I look forward to that future. And I look forward to watching your coverage on the path from A to B. I'll be reading you every step of the way. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at theradiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.